Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at Procino Wells and Woodland, and I'm joined today by Michelle Procino Wells. We're excited to discuss a really important topic today related to powers of attorney and healthcare directives. So let's get started. Sounds good. Yeah, very important topic. You know, we always call this lifetime planning. Yeah. And sometimes I think it gets overlooked and yes. it sounds so simple to yes. the average person, but we put a lot of emphasis on powers of attorney, especially in our office. Well, and I think too, when people think about estate planning, they always think about what's going to happen when they pass away. They don't necessarily think about what's going to happen if I become ill, if I become incapacitated. And so that's why we like to talk about lifetime planning because it's just as important. Just as important. So let's, we're going to talk about powers of attorney and advanced healthcare directives, but let's start with powers of sure. attorney because we really refer to this as the most important estate planning document. Right. So do you want to go into a little sure. bit of detail as to why we consider it the most important estate yeah, planning document? So and two, just to kind of define it, you know, power of attorneys where you're going to appoint an agent, you know, somebody that you trust mm -hmm. completely um, that can step in and help you manage life if you're unable to do that yourself, whether that's decisions regarding your finances, you know, legal types of decisions. Um, it's a super important document because the consequences, if a person doesn't have one, um, can be really bad and really expensive. You know, technically, you know, it's a good thing that no one has the legal authority to act for someone else, but in lots of situations, um, you know, that type of authority is needed and either you're going to have a power of attorney document where you've appointed someone or otherwise you're forced with resorting to a court appointed guardianship proceeding, which is um, stressful, time consuming and can be very expensive. So it's so straightforward, pretty simple to create a power of attorney document um, that can you know, avoid that risk of having a need for guardianship later on. Right. And I think we should kind of dovetail off of that and talk mm -hmm. about when a power of attorney should be created and what kind of capacity is required to create a power of attorney because it's right. when there's no capacity to create one that we land in the court with a guardianship. Right. So amazingly, though, the capacity is fairly limited. You know, a person just has to understand what they're doing. You know, people often get hung up on, you know, well, mom can't sign her name very well, so is it too late for her? Well, it has nothing to do with that physical act of signing the document. It's really all about, you know, does mom understand that she's going to name you as her agent, that she's going to give you authority to act for her if she's not able to do it herself. Um, and so, yeah, you have to have capacity. And what's really hard is when families come to us, especially in our asset protection planning side of our practice, you know, families come to us and they don't have a good power of attorney and no one has authority to do planning mm -hmm. on their loved one's behalf. So, yeah, you have to have that basic um, you know, capacity to understand in the moment, you know, that you're giving someone else authority and that you're able to, you know, say who you want to designate. And then to create the power of attorney, there's some formalities that we have to satisfy. So it's really important to use a lawyer <laughs> right? and not to fall trapped to downloading forms off the internet and trying to complete right. them yourself right. because it's easy to mess this up because a power of attorney is 
only valid if it's signed, witnessed, and notarized properly with the right. proper capacity. Right. So, yeah, and in, in Delaware and in Maryland, you know, there was pretty significant legislation passed in 2010, which requires, you know, very specific language to be in power of attorney documents. You know, prior to that, you could have a document that would say, you know, I give my agent authority to do everything and anything that I could do for myself. And that worked mm -hmm. until two, 2010. And now, you know, those documents have to have very specific authority. And where a lot of people get tripped up is most every state now has a statutory form mm -hmm. that can be used to create a power of attorney. And while that sounds great, people that use those forms that don't understand what they're doing, and unfortunately, even some attorneys out there that don't really practice in this area of law will use those statutory forms and have this, you know, false sense of security that they've got everything that they need. Um, but I just this week ran into a situation where son has come to us. He wants to do asset protection planning for mom. And she has a Maryland statutory power of attorney that doesn't include any authority for gifting, no authority to create trust. And we're stuck mm -hmm. unless he goes the guardianship route, which you know he's not looking forward to. No expensive and public and super time consuming yes. that a good thorough up-to-date power of attorney right. would have right fixed yes. yes but because mom doesn't have capacity to sign a new one exactly. we're stuck with the other one right and it's not it's not thorough it's not sufficient it, yeah right, right. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most frustrating things for us in our it practice is, is yes. we're often working with clients, family members who want to do legal planning for them as they are in advancing in age or if their health condition is such that they need long-term care and we want to help mm -hmm. these families, but we can only help them if they have a good up-to-date thorough right. power of attorney. Right. And a lot of them aren't. And it's sad because people have these documents and you know, it's, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And in my case this week, it was drafted by an attorney. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had certainly, you know, the right to expect that it was all that they needed. Right. So, yeah, I think if we could shout it from the rooftops, to we definitely make, would <laughs> make yeah. sure that powers of attorney are incredibly thorough and really they need to be created by an attorney and they really need to be created by an attorney who specializes in elder law. So when we're working with families to create these legal documents, we're putting a lot of emphasis on picking the right person for the job. Mm -hmm. Because when you're designating an agent or the person who's going to be acting for you, you're, you want to pick the right person for the job. You want to think about their skill set. I, I say to my clients, you're hiring for a position. <laughs> right? <laughs> do, do they have all the skills needed to step into your shoes and pay your bills and sign your tax returns and do legal planning for you? And if they don't have the right skill set, they're probably not the best choice. Yes. And so I think that that lends itself to when you're naming the right person for this job, mm -hmm. the power of attorney can be effective the day you sign it yes. versus being only effective upon future incapacity. Yeah. So you want to just touch on immediate sure. powers of attorney versus springing. Yeah. So it just means immediate, like you said, it's, it's effective the day you sign it. If you become ill or have surgery or you're going to be out of the country or whatever comes up, your agent can step in and act for you. Whereas a springing power of attorney is going to require a doctor be involved. And that doctor is going to have to declare you 
you know, unable to manage your own affairs. And so if you make it springing, it can't be used um, just because you've had surgery and you're laid up for a while or you're going to be, you know, traveling for a bit. Um, so most people make them so they're effective immediately. That's mm -hmm. what I generally recommend because the thing is, you know, you got to make sure you're trusting the person that you're naming mm -hmm. or you shouldn't name them at all immediate or springing. No. Um, and, you know, typically you take the document, you tuck it away and you keep control of the original document. Mm -hmm. But you know that if something happens or when you're ready to let your agents start acting for you, you know, you can give it to them. So yeah, most people make them immediate. Yeah. And so in designating the agent, mm -hmm. I think probably the most common is what we would refer to as successive authority, where there's right. one person right. named and if they can't act, then the next person is acting. Right. And so right. it's one after another after another. But could you touch on the other way to name multiple agents and the two different ways to go about naming multiple agents at the same time? Right. And so um, lots of people, you know, I, I have clients, they'll come in with five kids and they'll be like, well, I want to name all five kids. <laughs> and, you know, I always kind of have the hair stand up on the back of my neck when people say that, because, you know, you, the more people involved, the more risk of conflict. But you can name joint or co-agents, I should say. And then you have the option of giving them joint authority or concurrent authority. Joint means, you know, so if I name, you know, two of my sons and I name them jointly, they're both going to have to go and do whatever needs to be done. You know, if they're going to close an account at the bank, they're both going to have to be involved in that. If they're going to sell a property, they're both going to have to be involved. Where concurrent authority means I can have them both appointed as co-agents at the same time. And technically they have to, you know, discuss things and agree between themselves. But then as to third parties, it only takes one of them to go and take whatever action it is. So if it's closing a bank account, only one of them has mm -hmm. to go to the bank. And so it's there as a convenience you know when that that was part of the that 2010 statute and when that first came out I remember thinking oh my goodness this is gonna be a mess mm -hmm. you know you're gonna have agents and they're gonna be doing different things and they're not gonna communicate and you know knock on wood we haven't seen that no um, it really does work seem to work nicely um, and it's nice that, you know, those agents can sort of look over each other's shoulders and, you know, you know, maybe one can handle certain things and the other can handle others. So we see the concurrent used a lot. The joint um, can be cumbersome, mm -hmm. you know, to have to require people to have to do things together. But some of our clients, that's what they want. The, you know, the checks and balance. Right. That's yeah. what they want. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely in those cases, you know, it's nice to have that as an option. I use concurrent authority a lot because I consider it a way to divide and conquer. Yes. But you have yeah. to have you have to have people who are willing to communicate well with each other right. and work together. Right. Otherwise, it's never going to work. And part of that 2010 statute requires that the agents, before they can act, sign something yes. called an agent certification. Yes. And maybe that's why it's not abused as much as maybe what we originally thought. But right. yeah, yeah, and I think that's a good point. I think actually now you, we do see like. Abuse. Mm -hmm. I think that that agent certification has helped when people have to say, they have to sign it and say, you know, I'm going to behave. Right, right. <laughs> and, I, and I understand that my job is to act in the best interest of the person who's appointed me and not myself. I think hopefully if that's work. They take it seriously. Right, right. Yeah, because since 2010, you can't act as agent unless you sign that certification. Yes. Yep. Yep. So to wrap up powers of attorney, I think about some of just the questions we hear from the community when we're out speaking or you know, a lot of myths that surround yes. this document. And one of them that comes to mind is, 
well, Michelle, I'm married. Yeah. So can't my husband or my spouse do everything for me if yeah. I'm not able to do it for myself? Yeah. And I think, you know, people often think that because of joint bank accounts, you know, husband and wife, married couple, you know, have uh, both names on a bank account. Well, that means either of them can go and take action with that account. It's because they're both on the account. Right. You know, I always joke, try to get into your spouse's IRA. Right. Yeah. You're going to get shut down very quickly. You know, try to sell your house that's in both of your names, you know, without the other spouse being involved, you're going to get shut down very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really is important planning, even for married couples, mm -hmm. really kind of, that's probably most, the most important use of a power of attorney, how we see it in practice. Yeah. You know, we see that all the time where one cut, one uh, spouse has become ill and the other spouse is trying to manage life mm -hmm. and they really do need that authority. So yeah, it's a really, that's a, a huge myth that we, we do get faced with a lot. Um, so really important to, to understand how that works. Yep. Even if you're married, you still need a power of attorney and after a spouse, yes. you can name someone else in succession, right. but super important. And then I think the next item that we often hear that I think is a myth is, well, I've signed a power of attorney with my real estate agent or my real estate attorney, or I've signed a power of attorney with my financial advisor. So why do I need a general right. power of attorney that my attorney would create? And, and you said it, you know, a general power of attorney versus a specific mm -hmm. power of attorney. If I sign, if I have bank accounts at PNC Bank and I sign a power of attorney there, that's only going to authorize my agent to transact business with those accounts at PNC. Right, super specific. And and that's not not enough. Well, it's that can be great, it can be um, great planning. It's not enough because that's not going to allow your agent to call your health insurance company and ask mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. or you know do other things on your behalf. So it's really important to have a general, very broadly written mm -hmm. uh, power of attorney in addition to any of those specific ones that you might sign for you know particular actions. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So powers of attorney being that most important foundational mm -hmm. lifetime planning document so that there's someone or more than one person to step in and make legal and financial decisions for you if you become incapacitated. Mm -hmm. Sort of as a companion to that, we don't like to create one without the other, <laughs> right, right. is the advanced healthcare directive. Right. Yeah. Because they, they do go hand in hand. Yeah. They really do. So Healthcare directive, you know, that's a document, you know, another legal document that has, you know, multiple components related to healthcare decision making. Mm -hmm. um, the document that we use in our office has three parts. It has that medical power of attorney mm -hmm. where a person's going to name an agent again, but this is going to be a specific, this is an example of a specific power or uh, yeah, specific power of attorney where um, it's, it's to be used only for healthcare or medical decision making. So oftentimes people will say, name the same um, people that they name in their, their general power of attorney, but really important to think about, you know, if all of a sudden I'm unable to make my own medical decisions, you know, who do I want to be able to make those decisions and instruct my healthcare providers? So really important to have in that document. Right, and then the two other components to this document really deal with organ donations mm -hmm. or anatomical gifts. Right. And then there's the living will component yes. that's built in. Yes. So let's just spend a couple minutes sure. talking about those components too. Yeah. So organ donation, you know, something really important. Um, you know, lots of people have it on their driver's license mm -hmm. and it's a little red heart in Delaware if you have it on your license. Um, but what's interesting, if the person, if a person doesn't have it on there, you don't necessarily know that that means they're opposed to organ donation. Right. And if they do have it on there, you don't really know what 
that means. Does that mean they're okay with donating their entire body mm-hmm. or only, you know, needed organs or, you know, needed parts? Or are they only open to it for transplantation? Or are they okay with it for, you know, research or education purposes? So the organ donation allows you to be more specific. I think every week someone says to me, oh my goodness, but I'm so old or I'm, I've had this health <laughs> problem. No one's going to want my organs. And so the nice thing is the directive allows you to say, no, thank Thanks. you. It has, a, it has a choice that you can initial that says, I do not wish to make anatomical mm-hmm. gifts at my death. Um, or it, it allows you, if you are open to the idea, even if you think it might be unlikely, mm-hmm. like I think that's the key is that, you know, you always want to fill it out as if you're young and healthy and everyone wants your organs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then if no one's asking the question at the time then you know no one no it it doesn't matter Um, but it's important to have those wishes laid out you know it allows you to say you know are you okay with donating your entire body or just needed organs or parts or you could be very specific and identify you know my heart my kidneys my whatever Um, and then really importantly you can identify for what purposes you're willing to donate um, so it, it includes one option that says any purpose authorized by law. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people choose that. They're mm-hmm. perfectly fine with that. Others don't like how broad that is. Mm-hmm. So it's important to be able to let, you know, your loved ones and your healthcare providers know you can choose transplantation, medical education, research, therapy. So lots of options uh, to think about in that part of the document. And then living well, just this morning, I was meeting with a client's daughter. Mm -hmm. I did planning for them about eight years ago, and they're both, husband and wife are now in a local nursing facility. And mom said to her daughter, I want to make sure that I have a DNR. Mm. Now that I'm in a facility, if it's my time to go, I want that made clear. And she was sort of saying to her daughter, ask Amber when you talk to her today, <laughs> what I if what I signed back in 2015 does the trick. Right. And I, I think that there is a lot of confusion between what is the living will component of an advanced directive and what does it do versus a DNR, do not resuscitate order versus something else called a Delaware medical order for scope of treatment. And the way I left it with the daughter and the agent today is I said, you need to talk to the nursing facility about the latter too. The DNR and the DMOST are not something that I would prepare for mom. But her 2015 advanced healthcare directive allows you to make medical decisions, outlines mom's wishes with regard to organ donation, and also talks about end-of-life medical treatment. And that's the living will. So could you just compare and contrast the living will to the DNR to the (laughs) DMOST for our listeners? Yeah, so DNR, you know, do not resuscitate. Right. Even if you think you can. Right. That's how I always think of it. You know, usually DNRs are going to be used for someone who's become you know, very elderly or someone who has perhaps a, a terminal diagnosis where they're saying, you know, if I stop breathing, if my heart stops, do not resuscitate mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And so that is very different from an advanced healthcare directive living will. You know, a living will is going to be, you know, if a person, it's going to apply if all of a sudden a person's been in a terrible accident mm-hmm. or some kind of health crisis. And, you know, it takes analysis. You know, doctors have to determine that that person's condition 
is irreversible, that there's no reasonable expectation of recovery. Um, and so that's not going to be that split second decision. Like with a DNR, you honor a DNR because, and you don't do anything in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, typically living will, you know, the, the healthcare providers are going to make sure that person is stabilized, then do the analysis to determine if that person is in a true end of life condition. The demost is kind of in between, you know, that's typically intended for someone who expects to have maybe two years or less to live because of um, some kind of, of health issue. Um, it's also created that, you know, the, the DMOST and um, the DNR, like you said, they're they're created with healthcare providers, mm-hmm. not by attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they're going to be used in very um, specific kinds of situations where the living will is something you, you know, typically put in place while you're healthy and you hope you don't or aren't going to need it for a very, very long time, right. if ever. Right. Um, but in case something happens, but yeah, it requires, you got to have two doctors certify in writing that you're in a qualifying condition and you have to be unable to communicate your wishes mm-hmm. um, before the living will is ever going to kick into effect. And if it does apply, you know, what it, it instructs, you know, don't do anything to prolong life at that point. Don't use life sustaining procedures, you know, let the person pass away naturally. Um, the, the document we use uh, includes instruction to keep me comfortable, mm-hmm. <laughs> use pain, use pain, medicas, med- pain mm-hmm. medication if necessary, allow my named agent mm-hmm. to be involved and, you know, making specific decisions about what treatments should be used or not. But within that context of me saying, you know, look, I don't want my life artificially prolonged. Right. Yep. Right. I mean, so I think the point of this episode is make sure you have a good lifetime plan yes. in place yes. and use these two separate, but coordinating legal documents, the power of attorney and the healthcare directive to make sure you've got trusted people designated right. and your wishes right. are outlined. And the takeaway is if you're over 18, <laughs> you probably need both of these yes. documents, yep. whether I, you're single or married, yep. whether you have a lot of wealth or not. If you're over 18, no one has authority to act for you unless you've given them authority in these documents. Yep. I created okay. these for my older boys before they took off for college. Yes. Once they were 18 and we no longer had legal authority to act for them, I said, hey, guys, let's let's talk about this document. Right. So yeah. really, really important. Yeah. I'm, I'm always so proud of young people when they think about this kind of yeah. thing right. because it is, it's critically important. Anything could happen and incapacity could happen to any of us at any point. That's so. Right. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.